0: Tonight, on Narrative Special Report, as the U.S. and Russia stare down each other over Ukraine, we'll go live to Kyiv in Red Lines over Ukraine. Thanks to BetterHelp for supporting tonight's investigation. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com forward slash zev. That's betterhelp.com forward slash zev. Start living a better life today. And hello, everybody. Welcome to a very special edition of Narrative Live. I'm in Toronto and our very special guest from Kyiv is Yevgen Fachenko. How are you, Yevgen? Nice to see you tonight. Early morning. Yeah, good evening. Great to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Yevgen is a very smart person. He's the PhD and a co-founder and chief editor of the fact-checking website StopFake.org. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now, he's also a former student of the man you see on the far right of your screen, Michael McKay, who's also in Canada, in Ottawa. Hi, Michael. How are you?
1: I'm very well, Zeb.
0: Good to see you. Now, Michael's been here on the show before talking about all things Ukraine with us. And as we seem to be on the edge of all-out war in Ukraine tonight, you know, we're back together with Michael and glad to have Yevgen here to talk about the prospects of what's going on, but also to understand exactly how uh, what's happening in Ukraine really does affect the United States and American politics going forward. But Yevgen, give us an update. What's going on right now in Ukraine?
2: Uh, yeah, so we are now at the moment when uh, we talk about escalation of the war, but actually the main point is that Ukraine is living with this war during the last eight years, since 2014 when Russia attacked Ukraine first and occupied first Crimea, and then part of Donbas, and now we have seven percent of Ukraine's territory been occupied by Russia, so for us it's not a new reality, we continue living in that. But now we also feel surrounded by Russian forces from all the sides, and that's bringing kind of a new reality, but on another hand, I look at my fellow Ukrainians and I see how reserves they are how prepared now they are and of course there is a huge difference between now and 2014 when ukraine was absolutely unprepared absolutely kind of naive uh, unprepared both politically and militarily so now we are in absolutely different position and if we have the kind of new heat new impact coming from uh, russian forces we are much more prepared for that
0: It is really important to underline. The key point you're making there is that this has been going on for eight years. Uh, This is not new for Ukraine. Russia has been at war in Ukraine, slowly taking away territory on the eastern side for eight years now. So... This is an escalation, certainly, but it's not, as you point out, new for you guys at all. However, it is different because, you know, on your borders now, there are 120,000 different you know Russian troops, apparently. And, and you're surrounded in some ways because you've got Belarus now joining up with Russia. That's certainly changed the dynamics over there. It's a lot more complicated in terms of the intensity of the conflict that could arise if all-out war does break out
2: yeah exactly it's very different situation on the ground now from military point of view but uh again if we would look uh, at kind of wider political picture we would see that the, this time it's not only about ukraine so now Russia basically is at the war with uh, Europe and with a democratic world, and what they want to do not only to basically deny Ukraine's right to exist which is the bottom line of this movements against Ukraine per se but also Russia wants to change uh, Europe and the world. from geopolitical point of view they want to return to Yalta agreements basically and to new division in Europe which did not happen since the end of World War II, and then since the fall of the Berlin Wall. So now we see that grand events happening and uh, Ukraine just happened to be in the middle of those events. So to summarize, there are kind of two layers to that, Uh, the Ukrainian situation per se, and uh, the stake is the Ukrainian survival of independent states. So it's existential threat, and you're absolutely right, we are surrounded basically by Russia. But also uh, Russia is blackmailing the world with prospect of occupying Ukraine, and they want uh, demands to be seriously taken. And uh, I'm very happy to see that it's a non-starter for the world to accept that and to negotiate, because it's basically a terrorist approach in international relations. You take hostages, and this hostage is Ukraine, and then you set up some uh, demands and then you demand the ransom from the world. So that's how Russia now positions itself with the rest of the world.
0: That's so critical, this idea that, you know, it's why I named tonight's show Red Lines Over Ukraine, because Ukraine is, in fact, a big significant factor here, of course. They're the ones that might be the victims of war here, but the reality of it is what's really going on is a geopolitical dance between the West and Russia about whether democracy is gonna maintain its dominance in the world, about whether Russia you know, sort of more autocratic approach is going to get a toehold in the West in a real significant way. Michael, I've got a little bit of a background to get to in a second here, but as you see the situation, you've been monitoring things in Ukraine for a very long time. How likely is it that there will be an attack on Ukraine?
1: Well, in terms of likely, I see it in one sense as certain because Russia has been attacking Ukraine and will continue to do so. So I think what we want to say is will the nature of the attack change? Mm-hmm. So that's why I always want to talk about what we're looking at now is an offensive, you know. So will there be an offensive? For example, just for comparison, 7 years ago right now, there was an offensive. It was in a part of the east of Ukraine around a city called Debaltseve and the Russians eventually took that city that was part of the invasion then that was an offensive but it was very constrained you know and in fact the result of that that was the last territorial gain that Russia made in this war you know that if and it didn't happen if the Ukrainian army had collapsed at that point well then Putin would not have stopped he would mm-hmm. have kept on going and we'd be in the position we're in now saying oh there might be a wider offensive and it will draw in other european countries We would have been in that position seven years ago if the Ukrainians had not had this tactical defeat but strategic victory by stopping the Russian invaders after Sevi and that's been it. So you asked if it's likely they'll attack. I say yes, but the question is what will the nature of the attack be? Now, what the Americans and others are looking at is will this be a broad offensive such as we have not seen in Europe since the Second World War you know, armoured infantry pouring across the Russian Federation and also Belarus border and this kind of thing? Or will it be more of the same, maybe augmented raids and not just the usual shelling, but an attempt to take some territory in the east of Ukraine? It will be one of those, mm. and I think prudent measures by Western partners of Ukraine now can make sure that it does not become the worst result, which is a broad offensive, which would return us to, as you have Yevhen said, in Yalta conditions. Actually, not Yalta, but before Yalta, when there was the war, and yeah. it wasn't sure who was going to win.
0: Yeah, but the prospects what we're saying is, you know, he has already got a quite a significant amount of influence in the eastern part of Ukraine. I mean, as you point out, it's taken 7% of territory already. A lot of the eastern part of Ukraine seems to have been softened up a little bit for um, any potential invasion. And more broadly than that, it seems unlikely that he'll want to disrupt such a big revenue stream for himself, which is the oil and gas revenue stream, which seems to go through Ukraine, largely, to Europe and other parts of the world. So, you know, the incentive for him might not be that great to attack Ukraine. Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Well, I don't see him as having influence in these parts of Ukraine. It's occupation. Mm -hmm. so it's not it's that he he stole the land and you know holds the people there who remain captive because Mm -hmm. you know there's one and a half million internal refugees from this area and if you look at east of ukraine in general well then let's look at an area that he does not occupy like kharkiv Mm -hmm. in fact his influence there has declined dramatically you know if you look at unoccupied ukraine so his question is He's not winning hearts and minds, unoccupied Ukraine, and he's not going to succeed ever. In fact, it's going the other direction.
0: Mm -hmm. Is this map accurate? You're looking at it right now. Does this show you this little section here in the red area? Yes, we we should add in
1: Crimea because it has the same status. It is invaded and Mm -hmm. occupied territory of Ukraine, now under occupation by the Russian Federation. So they really are the same in terms of their status, regardless of what the Putin regime calls it. But we're talking about occupied territory. And then so you look at the areas outside of them, they are no different in terms of the composition. We're talking about Ukrainian land, Ukrainian people, you know, whether they speak Russian or call themselves Russian ethnics is not really the most important thing. These people are Ukrainians. You know, one of the signs of Putin losing the hearts and minds battle that I've observed growing over the years is this remarkable phenomenon of russian-speaking Ukrainian nationalists which mm. is not at all in tune with the sensibility that Russian presents it and this is this would be familiar to American viewers for example because it's the idea of the melting pot where they say well it doesn't matter where you come from and what language you speak we're all Americans the kind of idea we uphold certain kinds of values mm. so there's this transcending idea of nationhood which is actually, yes, Ukraine is the state language and that's a part of this kind of thing, but it's really a remarkable and modern thing about how Ukraine has emerged and really this war has been a crucible for this emergence. So Putin's in a bind. He either has to have more of this occupied
0: territory or he fails. We're going to talk a lot more about that. I gave you a little preview of my little piece there, so I'm going to play it now that I've previewed it. And on the other side, we'll talk some more about why this really does have an impact on America. And particularly in this piece, I try to outline some of the similarities between the events that led up to the attack on Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine eight years ago and to what happened in 2016 in the United States. Take a look at how European countries lined up when it came to backing a US decision to send arms to Estonia. Germany balked but Spain and the Netherlands supported the move. Now, why did they support the move? It has everything to do with natural gas. It's easy to see that countries who rely more heavily on Russia for natural gas are more reluctant to support arming the Ukrainians. So if you look at the Netherlands, very little reliance on Russian gas. Look at Spain, very little reliance on Russian gas. But then on the other hand, Belarus, Poland, Germany, 29, 39% there rely on Russian gas an enormous amount. Russia has used its natural gas and oil supplies as an instrument of foreign policy for as long as they have had oil. They even used the same levers on the Koch family patriarch almost a century ago. So this is what we can expect of them. Oil and gas is, in fact, an extension of Kremlin policy. Now, oil and gas is not the only way a Russian exerts soft power. They have another export. We might call it transnational organized crime, They might think of it as the oligarchy, Russian oligarchs like Oleg Deripaska and Konstantin Malofiev. Deripaska, in particular, was responsible for hiring this man, Paul Manafort, to engineer the election of one Viktor Yanukovych. Yanukovych was a disgraced local politician in uh, Ukraine when his career was resurrected by Manafort and his deputy, Russian operative named Konstantin Kalimnik. You see him there on the left of that picture with a blue shirt and red tie. Yanukovych landed up becoming the Ukrainian president. He and his cronies then emptied out the state treasury and he escaped to Russia, where he remains today, after he was literally tossed out of power by the Maidan revolution. Russia also uses cyber warfare, the same kind of warfare that they use in the United States, to sow confusion and division among Russian-speaking Ukrainians in the East and the Western-leaning part of Ukraine, which is more favorable to NATO. And that is how we got to Russia's attack in the eastern parts of Ukraine and Crimea eight years ago. Now, if you're following along, the American narrative is not that dissimilar. In fact, if you look at Manafort, if you look at uh, Kalimnik, if you look at all the other participants, it appears to me that we're following a pretty similar narrative. It's why it's so important that what happens in Ukraine reflects on what will happen in the future of American politics. So correct me, I'm sure I got some history wrong there. Either of you jump in and tell me what I did, what I might have said wrong about the history there.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And when uh, Putin attacks against Ukraine started back in 2014, we created Stop fake and started to look more widely at what instruments Russia is using, like uh, non-kinetic instruments of war and disinformation was one of them, cyber attacks were another. And we started to look, are those messages which disinformation is pushing for Ukraine, are they unique or they can be very easily used in other places like Europe, United States? And the approach is we noticed are pretty much the same. So they are looking for any kind of divisions or if they don't see any, they can easily create them. And this division of Ukraine, you mentioned, and division to the East, allegedly pro-Russian, Russian-speaking, and then the West, Mm -hmm. was uh, exactly created by uh, Russian political consultants before Orange Revolution in Ukraine in 2004. Mm -hmm. And since then, it became one of the technologies used in Ukraine. And basically, the spike of that happened in 2014 when they started to explain the war mm-hmm. with that division, but so it's very similar. In, yeah, to, absolutely. To the so idea of the Republicans the and
0: the MAGA movement and Democrats, uh, or more democratic leading part of the electorate, that really is a very similar division it was absolutely. created in the United States. It was also created in Ukraine.
2: Yeah, and uh, very often we've seen that the same uh, GRU or FSB people were involved in creation those divisions. Mm-hmm. and. Even if they do not create those cracks in society, they are just looking for them to make them bigger, to exploit mm-hmm. them. And also they created a, a very huge machinery for disinformation, both in Ukraine and in the United States. We have RT over there. Mm-hmm. We have uh, radio stations which were recently bought by Russians and which are available now in the United States we have a lot of uh, social media influence which amplifies all those uh, ideological uh, differences uh, between people and uh, it helps a lot to what they want to achieve so they really want to see uh, division in the societies and they want to place a line both in united states in ukraine they want to divide european countries they want to divide europe and united states And it works very well, because we've seen uh, not that many attempts to stop that. Mm. And with uh, Russia, I'm always quoting Lenin, who said that, you know, when you're dealing with Bolsheviks, they're usually using their bayonet, you know, to get through something, and if they get to something kind of uh, hard, they stop. But if they get to that mesh, you know, they continue moving until they achieve their goal. So it's absolutely a Leninist approach to dealing with the West, you know, mm. and so it's they are probing uh, the grounds. It's a trial and error approach, you know, but if they do not see defense against what they're doing, they're just kind of uh, going up and up to the next level. And that's exactly what we see now with Putin. So as you rightly said, he's probing NATO, he's probing United States, how far he can be allowed to go with that.
0: Mm. Michael, I think of Yanukovych a lot like I think of Trump, and it's not just because of Manafort and Kalimnik and Gates who are there to prop up uh, Yanukovych, but they're also there for Trump. Is that analogy, is that accurate? Um, Yes, it is. But I think what the important thing is,
1: how do the Russians approach both of these men? What are they to them? And they both have exploited them as assets or as agents of influence. Mm -hmm. So it's not, oh, they're agents and they're paid or they're, you know, under the SVU or something like that. No, that's not the point. The point is that they are manipulable. Because, well, they're both grifters, is what they are, and they're easily manipulable. And to the Putin regime, they are agents of influence. And as such, it actually doesn't matter if they are effective. For example, if they're really good at helping Russia. The important thing is that they be chaotic and that they Mm -hmm. harm their own side with whatever influence that they've got. So for example, as long as Yanukovych wasn't anti-Russia, and you know, he withdrew Ukraine's application for membership to NATO, he foolishly signed an extensive lease to Sevastopol, and that was fine. As long as it was eroding Ukraine, that was fine. And then when his level of theft was so outrageous, and ultimately he rejected the association agreement with the EU, and this also outraged uh, Ukrainians, and then his position became untenable, well, then he just wasn't worth supporting by Putin anymore, and he pulled him. So he was effective up to a point, and then he was just an agent of chaos, you know, the Maidan massacre and this kind of thing. And then his last act was this appeal to uh, Russia to uh, invade Ukraine with a letter, and he was convicted in absentia of treason for that. And I think Trump is the same way to the Putin regime. You know, you say, well, he wasn't very effective. Uh, He didn't get sanctions lifted. Yeah, but he also wasn't effective for the U.S. as an ally of Ukraine, for example, or realizing its interests there or advancing the democratic agenda for democracy in the world. Uh, he, he was destructive of that. He was destructive of certainly political unity in the United States, exacerbating the uh, you know, the divide in political culture in the United States, mm-hmm. You know, the breakdown of consensus Absolutely. that yeah. had been a strength of American political culture for so long. I think people realize have been broken down. And, you know, he contributed to that. So you say, well, he wasn't so good for Russia. Yeah, but he was destructive for the United States, which is all the same to Putin.
0: Stand by for more of my conversation with Yevgen and Michael about the conflict in Ukraine. Quick, name one thing that you would change right now that interferes with your happiness. Now, what if I told you there's a way to achieve that? BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy platform, making professional therapy accessible, affordable, and convenient. When you join BetterHelp, you'll be assigned your own licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. Your sessions with your trusted therapist take place in a safe and private online environment. And you don't need to drive anywhere or sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. And no one but you and your therapist, that's it, needs to know about what you're doing. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. So if you don't like your counselor, no problem. It's free and easy to switch. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is Is also available. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash Zev. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's BetterHelp, B E T T E R, help, H E L P, dot com forward slash Zev for 10% off your first month. Thank you, BetterHelp. Yevgeny, what do you think of that analogy? Do you think that Yanukovych and and Trump have similarities?
2: I'm actually happy you mentioned uh, Yanukovych because he epitomizes uh, corruption of post-Soviet elites, and Mm. uh, that was a foundation for spreading Russian influence in a post-Soviet space because it's like a common denominator and uh, why russia became very unhappy with ukraine because they realized that ukraine is changing as it's changing to the better, and it become example of another reality which is possible to achieve and of course having ukraine besides non-corrupted democratic would be sending very wrong signals to putin's consistency back in russia and that's one of the annoying moments for Putin, and that's why he was happy with Yanukovych as well as he's happy with any other corruptioner around because they can very easily find a common language. And for Ukraine, it was very very important to get rid of all that and to start moving away from that and uh, we have kind of a tagline away from Moscow because uh, Moscow is it's like a corruption international which epitomizes anti-democratic society anti-democratic corruption government And uh, they also try to spread this corruption outside to those countries, which uh, usually were boasting that they are absolutely free of corruption, including European countries. And we've seen some former European policymakers becoming uh, on the payroll of Gazprom and uh, Mm -hmm. other Russian state-run companies Mm -hmm. doing errands for them and other things. So we see that this is effective, and that's why we now also see some voices coming from the West saying, well, probably Putin is right, and Ukraine is doing everything wrong. And sometimes, yes, yeah, those people just believe in that, but sometimes those people are just very well paid to promote that type of narratives around.
0: hundred uh, percent. You know, you mentioned the corruption, and it seems incredibly corrosive. You know, um, with this one man, uh, Igor Kolomoysky. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name correctly, is an example of how so much of this corruption is spread from Ukraine to the United States. And it's not just because he's connected to people like Rudy Giuliani and the these other two characters are uh, Fruman and they were you know we were well familiar with that story because it was led up to the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, but he's also apparently a quite a supporter of Zelensky of the president there now and that he is in fact a big financial backer of Zelensky. Now, Kolomoisky is not allowed in the United States anymore because of the criminal enterprises he ran in the United States, especially in Ohio. And there's been several reports and several investigations that have been launched because he's corrupted entire cities, corrupted entire states. He's the biggest landlord in Cleveland, Ohio, I think. And because of that, uh, you know, it created a huge financial crisis in the real estate market there. There's also the fact that he was the owner of Privat Bank, which is a Ukrainian bank, and he built, some say. The ukrainians of 5.5 billion dollars some of that money may have actually landed up being invested in the united states but it shows you the level of corruption that emerges when kremlin rule arrives you know and it certainly was the case with kolomoisky and all the way into the spread of that into the united states when donald trump was the president here that speaks a lot to the corruption you were talking about i don't know if you have any specific comments about kolomoisky or anything like that but how influential is he in your world
2: well, when Zelensky was elected a president Ukrainian society uh, gave him a huge credit of confidence and one of the biggest expectation was that he would distance himself from uh, oligarchs and he picked up this expectation and was trying to deliver it and saying that yeah I really want to not to be involved with oligarchy and and uh, even uh, what we saw can be called uh, war against oligarchs but Again, we can argue a lot how effective it was. Either it was just a rhetorical approach to that or is he really doing that and distancing himself from people like Kolomoisky or any other. But speaking on behalf of Ukrainian society, I can say that we really don't want to see Ukraine being associated with oligarchs and corruption because uh, that's really created a problem for Ukraine for many, many years. And again, it was exploited by uh, people in kremlin they've been saying that ukraine is not a real country it's a failed state because uh, it's run by oligarchs and uh, actually supported by them in many cases but they used it against Ukraine all the time, denying the agency to Ukraine and to Ukrainian people. And now, when we follow Russian disinformation, they immediately try to portray it as a, one of the biggest downsides of Ukraine. Sell it around like Ukraine is a hotbed of corruption.
0: Mm. But it's, in fact, they're it's the, the ones inspiring. They're the ones supporting the corruption. Exactly. The Kremlin is the ones exactly. are in fact, making it easier. Mean, we've seen it with the Pavel Fuchs. We've seen it with so many people who are of, you know, the Russian in terms of the fact that they were born in the Soviet Union when the Ukrainians were still under Soviet rule. But they, you know, spent a lot of time in in Pavel Fuchs' case in Russia, and he appears to be an agent of Russian intelligence, or at least influence, who knows? But, you know, he seems to take orders from the Kremlin in terms of the things that he does. And, you know, that, again, continues to underline the amount of um, corruption that seems to emerge from Ukraine, but doesn't necessarily. And all of that stuff seems to somehow connect to Rudy Giuliani. Because whenever you look in the world of Ukraine, Rudy Giuliani seems to show up somehow, you know, whether it's the parnas fruman combination or whatever. There's just a lot of Rudy when it comes to Ukraine. Do either of you have any comments about Rudy and about why he's so prominent in Ukrainian affairs? Well, I'd say he's actually not prominent in Ukrainian affairs. He's prominent in
1: Russian corruption. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when people say, oh, Rudy Giuliani went to Ukraine and met with Ukrainian oligarchs, what he's doing is acting as a cutout. He's a go-between, and Mm -hmm. as are these people he's meeting. So you look at their minor figures, and I'm thinking about people like, oh, Artemenko, who's Mm -hmm. just a minor uh, uh, pro-Russian deputy, or he was. And he's a nobody, and in a way, Giuliani's a nobody too. But what they are is a way to have the corruption of the Putin regime correct, connect into the seats of power in Washington, because if they can cook up a scheme, which they present as a peace plan, but was really a surrender Crimea plan, which is what they did, uh, it serves Putin. So I think if we focus too much on these figures, they're not decision makers, they're cutouts. And say what's the nature of what they're talking about and what they're achieving. It's a way to communicate. You know, when Giuliani made a trip in uh, 2017 and he goes to Kharkiv, and he's there meeting like the mayor of Kharkiv, mm. who uh, deceased now. He was a pro-Russian figure. He says, "Well, what's going on here? Like, why is Rudy Giuliani meeting with the mayor of a city in eastern Ukraine?" And that wasn't what it was about. <laughs> it was a connection. It was between
0: the Putin regime and the uh, Trump administration is what was going on. For sure. A very significant one. Uh, Yevgen, uh, the prognosis right now is that the Biden administration has promised that there'll be more forces potentially sent to support Ukraine. But some people are saying that it's in fact America that's making the tension increase, and that's mostly a Russian talking point, but or a Zelensky talking point I can't tell the difference, but people on the ground they're feeling like America is contributing to the tension. Uh, No,
2: just the opposite, at the very beginning I was saying that compared to 2014, Mm -hmm. now we feel a lot of international support, and uh, support coming from the United States is actually one of those strong signals which we believe might deter Putin and Russia from further uh, aggression and further incursion, because uh, for example today Ukraine received a plane load of uh, arms, and that's important from both from tactical point of view because those armaments would be delivered to the front line at some point but also it's important from a symbolic point of view so it uh, clearly sends a signal to putin that ukraine is not left alone and that's exactly what he wanted to see. So he really wanted to see Ukraine being isolated again, as I said, because of corruption, because of failed state, uh, as he described it, because he always was saying that Ukrainians and Russians are the same people. So when he sees that the United States are supporting, and by the way, this support is absolutely bipartisan Mm -hmm. coming from both parties. And uh, today uh, we've seen also a huge delegation from both parties, from uh, Congress leaving for Ukraine to have a first-hand assessment of the situation on the ground. that sends a very, very strong signal of support. And of course, I've seen some voices saying that uh, when the United States are uh, helping Ukraine with arms, with diplomatic supports, they are uh, contributing to the tension. just the opposite, they're contributing to uh, the non-military settlement because uh, weapons, for example, which are provided to Ukraine, they are defensive weapons. Ukraine cannot use it for offensive, as some people are saying that Ukraine is going to use it against uh, Russian forces in Russia, for example. And so that's absolutely, Kind of a wrong approach and it's a, a false moral equivalency when people are saying that here both ukraine and russia are kind of share responsibility for this conflict and tension and other things. so uh, just let me be clear here ukraine is defending its right to existence and if other countries are supporting this uh, political steps diplomatic support and also ukraine is now asking different countries to provide arms that's helping ukraine to uh, defend itself and we are saying and the rest and we would do the rest so we are not asking anyone to come and to do the actual fighting instead of us uh, but we would do that but please do support us and uh, believe me every signal sent uh, to putin is very well received over there and analyzed and assessed and every plane load of armaments coming to kiev these days can delay or postpone or abort further russian incursion into ukraine so every piece of equipment is counted
1: such yeah i I agree with that completely Mm -hmm. uh that it reduces tension absolutely um the way i look at it ukrainians are going to fight for themselves no matter what whether we help them or not, and that's been proven. And if all they have is a submachine gun, that's what they're gonna do. But if they have a Javelin missile, that is a greater likelihood at success at destroying that tank, which is in their country invading them. So, and every delivery, like the delivery today, does give Putin pause and makes it less likely that he will join the offensive. It is far more likely that a Ukrainian with a Javelin missile launcher is gonna destroy a Russian tank then with a submachine gun. They're not gonna do that, right? But they're likely to with that. And these are defensive weapons. And we know that Putin takes notice. For example, military analysts have been sending me this information. They've shown me how the Russians are jerry rigging a defense on their tanks because most of their tanks are actually quite old and not modern. And they've been welding a superstructure on top of it to make the uh, explosive of a top down missile explode mm. away from the tank. And they've kitted hundreds of their tanks with this, the tanks that are now deployed at the border. Mm-hmm. But is actually not a 100% defense either. The missile is gonna hit, it is still gonna do substantial damage and probably kill the the crew and quite likely disable the tank and it makes it less effective a weapon. So every missile like the ones delivered today uh, makes it less likely that Putin will make the decision and says, oh, we're gonna
0: roll the tanks.
1: Hmm, That's really interesting. Because the
0: cost he knows will be very much higher. So the the arms that are arriving in Ukraine are very effective, both as a deterrent, but also because it'll give the Ukrainians the weapons they need to fight, should they need to fight, which hopefully they won't. Um, But the point is, they're going to fight anyway with with whatever weapons they have. Right. And this means,
1: so we're making a decision when we're doing this. Are we going to have them fight poorly or well? Mm -hmm. That is the decision we're making. And it is in our interest that they do it well, because if they do it well, The russians don't succeed and the invasion battlefront doesn't get closer to us i mean people in western europe and and further on
2: i totally agree with michael because uh, putin's war is not going to end on ukraine so if ukraine would be weak and if ukraine would fall they would move on to the eastern european countries and our neighbors know that very very well Mm -hmm. that's why we see more and more support coming from countries like poland lithuania estonia latvia czechia because we have a shared experience of soviet occupation we know how it starts how it looks when it starts and how dramatically it ends with people killed moved to gulag and disappearing forever so for us these lessons are very well learned and so the people in western europe also should remember when eastern europe would fall they would be the next because if uh, russian tanks would not be stopped by javelins in ukraine they would move on and during the 2014 stage of the war there was a very famous uh, internet meme with a Russian tank standing in front of uh, Eiffel Tower in Paris, and the saying was, yesterday Luhansk, it's in eastern Ukraine, mm. and tomorrow Paris. Mm. And uh, actually, I don't see any obstacles for
0: that. Or even Alaska, you know. No uh, Ukraine, yeah. <laughs> yeah alaska nash yeah, <laughs> alaska be is ours. yeah so um a couple of points from people stacy says that that's a very good point putin won't stop at ukraine well yes indeed that seems almost certain uh marie says uh that dugan wants a eurasian union similar point not if dugan is still the guy that they're looking to for their guidance but it could be an upstate farmer says um, we've uh, slipped down that slippery slope before and it does not turn out well for anyone must defend democracy. Any comments on those from you, gentlemen, on, the, on those comments? Uh,
2: yeah, I would say, I would totally agree, democracy uh, defended because Putin see democracy as a, a danger for himself and uh, he is ready to go too far now to uh, make democracy at least looking weak mm-hmm. or to fail and that would be very very dramatic changes which would happen everywhere in the world and basically i am following russian media 24 hours a day Mm -hmm. and i can uh, say that conversations they conduct over there they are absolutely bringing us to uh, times of for example one genocide in rwanda so for example uh, on a talk show they're discussing how they're going to kill ukrainians for example Mm. or how russia is going to nuke the united states and uh, how many cities in the united states would be destructed by uh, nuclear weapons and that's a kind of a, a new normalcy so it's not something outstanding they're really seriously discussing that and that is happening 24 hours a day on all main russian TV channels so it's a normalization of the killing of ukrainians for example based on our ethnicity so
0: is that? Sorry, but is that, is that geared to, why are they doing that? Is that for the Russian population to feel like they will want to go and, and commit these crimes? Or is it just a, a sort of a nationalism that they're trying to build up?
2: Yeah, so they basically militarize the mindset of their own people. And it happens again since 2014. Mm-hmm. So to make sure that the concept of the Russia's war against everyone is not new to the Russian society, is susceptible to that idea, mm-hmm. and is not afraid for ramifications. For example, they're saying that we don't care about sanctions if they would put on us, we don't care about anything because we are a superpower, we have armaments and we can solve any problem with that so it's not a time for dialogue as they say mm. so there would be no negotiations so it's absolutely kind of a revanchist approach revanchist rhetorics and it looks very scary to me because i am really very interested in history and i was looking to hitler in germany and i see a lot of parallels in this rhetorics which is now happening in russia i see the same overtones in how they uh, explain what they're doing and, and why they're doing and it looks very very uh, dangerous to me
0: absolutely
1: I, and i like you and how you made that comparison to the rwanda gem- genocide because someone from outside would look at that and say how could radio have such influence But it did in Rwanda. That was how people got the information. It was totally dominated by one side with this language of hate. And it led to this horrific genocide. Now in Russia, you might say, oh, it's a modern country and people have the internet and so on. But as you know, it's television. And it's television that people watch and pay attention to. And it's lying to them and stoking up this hatred and fear just nonstop. And it does have the historical parallels. It is projecting Ukrainians not just as an enemy, but as subhuman, as a, an ethnic class that needs to be exterminated. And it is does lead to the worst possible result.
0: Uh, that's interesting. you raised some interesting points there. As Upstate Farmers says radio has immense influence in the United States as well, pointing to Sinclair and uh... I don't know, F-E-H-E. Uh, yes, or, yes, or, yes, yeah, yeah so And we also, shouldn't that, yeah. yeah. And in World War II, it had an influence here in Arizona with the Council for National Policy inspired evangelical radio in the rural areas too. Radio is still very powerful. It certainly seems like that's an interesting theme that you've placed down there. I, one of the you know the, the overarching themes that keeps coming up in the chat here is how nervous and scary it is that the same elements that infected um, Ukraine from Russia have also infected American politics and american society from your perspective yevin how do you um, suggest that americans combat this you know very uh, toxic cancerous kind of influence that uh, has arrived from russia in america
2: uh, yeah so i can share kind of a ukrainian uh, perspective what we've done so after 2014 for example ukrainian uh, television regulator banned uh, russian tv channels which were fully available here before 2015 we had more than eighty eight zero tv channels available mm-hmm. and you would not believe but all of them were weaponized even if those tv channels were doing uh, children programming mm-hmm. on music or movies it all became propaganda so mm-hmm. the ukrainian ofcom uh, regulator tubes them off air and That was absolutely the right decision, and also subsequently uh, Russian social media were sanctioned, like contact vk and uh, Telegram is another place where mm. there is a lot of disinformation, and uh, probably government should look into regulating that. And also the access to some uh, Russian propagandist websites were limited. And that's important because uh, we cannot just realize that the audiences are smart and they would decide by themselves what is great and what is malign and what is disinformation. Mm-hmm. So definitely there should be regulation. Another important issue is uh, deplatforming. So we really do not need to provide platform to uh, disinformation voices and it also should involve cooperation with social media companies. Another important issue, and we really started to work on this, is sanctioning of those people who are involved in manufacturing of this hate speech and disinformation. And as far as I know, there is a draft of uh, act in uh, US uh, Senate uh, which in case of the first incursion there would be sanctions on the main people involved in russian disinformation and this is really very very important point because those people have personal uh, responsibility for all this hate speech and boom green they've been producing for years and years and years and they definitely should, should be sanctioned and, uh, also it's important to withdraw advertising from those platforms and TV channels which distribute disinformation and hate speech and, and populism because then, uh, uh, commercial entities subsidizing disinformation outside with the uh, uh, Russian government, for example, if we talk about Russian media. So, And uh, last but not least, we should uh, understand finally that in Russia there is no traditional media system as we have in Ukraine, in the United States, in Canada. So the media system was absolutely destroyed by the government. And uh, uh, the same with the civil society, so basically there is no any checks and within Russian societies, there is no political parties, movements, uh, NGOs, uh, media. So basically the government now has a uh, dominating role over society and what is happening is a brainwashing of the society mm-hmm. in the most uh, brutal way and uh, preparing the society for, for the great war, as they call it. And uh, if we would not take any kind of actions against this, uh, we would not be able to stop this because if we would only look at the kinetic part of the war, that's only a part of the reality. As I mentioned, there is other parts to this like a cyber war and Ukraine was attacked just uh, last week uh, on the cyber domains. Uh, uh there is disinformation there are people of influence uh, russia is using uh we also discuss it so kind of there are multiple layers uh, how you can tackle all those problems but the time is running out so yeah we really you know, it's, inter- it's interesting i just want to,
0: to if i could just jump in there for one second because the american situation is a little different because it's not just foreign media coming from russia it's not just rt it seems that they've taken over fox news uh which is the number one news network in america it seems that they've taken over newsmax it seems that they have this other network called the oan which is um, these are american networks or at least they appear to be american networks but somehow whether it's through the management or ownership or secret funding or whatever, you know these networks have become disinformation sources for the Russian government, including in the issue of Ukraine, where there's some of the Americans out there saying that they support Russia in the attack on Ukraine because Fox News and Tucker Carlson keep um, pushing that line. And this is the number one news network in the United States. What do you think we should do with that?
1: Um, to put it in the American context, you see Yevhen mentioned uh, sanctioning. Uh, these mm. individuals. And a, a difficulty with the United States is, well, the United States has the First Amendment and freedom of speech is protected. And as long as these organizations can say, oh, we're journalists and uh, our organizations are exercise of free speech, it's going to be a problem. But sanctions is the right approach. So let's take an example. Um, the head of uh, RT, the, uh, what's her name, uh, Sego, Simonian. Uh, Simonian. Simonian. Simonian, yes. Simonian, yes that person is a threat to U.S. national security. (laughs) She is a threat Mm -hmm. and should be sanctioned for the grave risk she poses to international peace and security, which is Mm -hmm. the criteria of imposing sanctions. Mm -hmm. Well, she heads this organization, which is an influence organization, which poses a threat to U.S. national security. And so this is the way you can do it. It's not a question of free speech and journalism. She's not a journalist. RT is not a uh, news outlet kind of thing. But Tucker Carlson is an American. You're going
0: to sanction Tucker Carlson, you can't.
1: Okay. So how do we stop his Russian influence operation? Mm -hmm. Why is he doing? Who is he connected to? What is the influence that leads him to platform Russian propaganda? Uh, mm. on his channel so who are those people what are those entities what makes him the agent of influence for aggressor Russia that he is and so you go after those people and it's, it's like wrapping up organized crime mm. right you can't go after the big boss originally or the most influential right. but you find the bag man and you find the hitman and you turn them and you roll up the operation and that's the way to approach it like the absolutely. way we deal with organized crime
0: absolutely you have got anything else you want to add there yeah
2: i totally agree uh with michael they are not a real media organization so probably we really need to rethink the whole concept of media who is media today you know mm-hmm. and who are the real journalists and who are those who are masquerading as journalists to use the first amendment as an excuse to promote their disinformation and hate speech and other things so it's kind of a freedom of speech versus freedom of reach which is also kind of a concept which is now getting more and more traction around within media communities. So who can get a reach? Yes, you can have your right to express your views, but mm. what platforms can be used? for That's that? interesting.
0: I haven't heard that concept this before. Freedom be of reach. I re- like that. Re-
2: revived, yeah. Interesting. And also another thing that is they are not really journalists. So that's what I was arguing since 2014. And we should never, you know, sit on the same panel with them, you know, in discussing the virtues of freedom of speech and journalism, because they are basically killing journalism by uh, masquerading as journalism, because that kills the trust to you as a journalist, to me as a journalist, you know, and people trust them less and less because they're saying, oh, there is no truth, you know, it's all relative, you know, there is this truth and then there is alternative truth and other things. So we definitely should limit this concept to that there is only one truth, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably there is no complete objectivity, but the truth is absolutely well-defined and we should know exactly who is telling the truth, you know, and who is just pretending and saying, yes, we're also media, but they're not.
0: Right. Uh, this is a good question. Julia says, and, and we'll wrap up with this one, but why does Putin want to invade Ukraine now? Why didn't he do it when Trump was in office? It just doesn't, make, it just doesn't seem like a very opportune time. That's a very good point. This, isn't that the ideal time? You know, two years ago would have been ideal. Why didn't he do it then?
1: Well, because uh, who's in office in the White House isn't the deciding factor for mm-hmm. Putin. He actually is very uh, local in his perspective. And what happens in Ukraine is more important, mm-hmm. actually. So if we look at, you know, he did invade eight years ago and it went well, but only up to a point. And then the uh, kind of more static war that he's been fighting ever since has not... Turn things in his favor. So it's more because of what's happening in Ukraine or not happening in Ukraine from Putin's Mm. point of view, that is the deciding factor. And he would have liked maybe if conditions were, you know, uh, more favorable, like when in Trump's office, but it really isn't the most important thing to him. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah,
2: exactly. And I guess he was, uh, waiting and looking if Zelensky would really be more pro-Russian leader of Ukraine compared to Poroshenko. And that was the kind of uh, their feelings uh, as soon as Zelensky was elected as a president. So they yeah, were-
0: yeah. They wanted to give it time. Zelensky being was also yeah. a delaying and then factor. At
2: some point, Putin said, I don't see any difference between Zelensky and Poroshenko. They are both anti-Russian and from that point uh, he decided definitely to move forward because he see how ukraine is sleeping off russian sphere of influence so he started to have less and less uh, leverage over ukraine so mm-hmm. he doesn't have russian media he doesn't have too many russian oligarchs he doesn't have russian guests now in ukraine he doesn't have a lot of politicians uh, in Ukrainian parliament who can be described as pro-russian politician and ukraine started to be more self-aware as an independent state building its own institutions civil society army uh, diplomacy and other scenes and at some points uh, russian politicians were saying we are losing Ukraine. If we would not do something in a year, two, three from now, Ukraine is just gone because it it becomes a very different, very separate country.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, is Poroshenko back? He seems to be in the news lately. Is he attempting a comeback of some sort? Uh, yeah, I mean,
2: he he was always around, yeah. and they were competing with Zelensky kind of neck to neck in terms mm-hmm. of uh, their electoral support. And he has a very vital uh, political party, active in parliament, outside of the parliament, and uh, so he is quite a factor in Ukrainian domestic politics and at some point even uh, those people who have been following zelensky's struggle with poroshenko said that probably zelensky is even more worried about poroshenko coming back uh, rather than uh, afraid of putin mm-hmm. and that described kind of their domestic infight between two of them But that's good It describes Ukrainian uh, domestic political scene as a live, you know, and real when politicians are competing with each other. And that's what you would not see in Russia, for example.
0: Absolutely. That means democracy is working there. You know, Yevgen, uh, everyone here I know is thinking, even though we focus so much on American politics as it relates to Ukraine, uh, we're all with you in this fight and there's enormous solidarity, I think, from Everybody who is watching this show, and uh, our hearts are with you, and our minds are with you, and we wish you all the best. You know, we don't think conflict is coming in great amounts in the near future. We hope not, but uh, certainly our our best wishes to you and to every Ukrainian who is at least, uh, you know, in this moment still having a um, fear in their hearts as they approach a potential uh, attack from Russia. Um, I also want to give you an opportunity to talk about uh, your organization so our viewers can follow it. So please go ahead and tell and tell people about stopfake.org. Uh,
2: yes, yeah, so as I said back in 2014 we created stopfake.org, it's a fact-checking organization which is uh, Following Russian disinformation mainly, but we also are very active with COVID 19. We work also with Facebook as a third party verification partner. And uh, since 2014, we made a couple of most important things. So we defined who are the main players within Russian disinformation, we mapped the main narratives which they promote and we also uh, debunked all those scenes and you can find that all on our website which is also available in english so uh, that provided opportunity to compare ukraine experience to experience of other countries including countries of uh, eastern and central europe which is very similar as i said and that's why i really advise you to follow us also on uh, on twitter for the latest updates on disinformation, Ukraine, uh, and uh, sir, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about this.
0: Thank you so much, uh, and your to your Twitter account is Yevgeny as it's written on the screen now, without the space, and uh, stop fake org is that the name of the uh... uh stop faking news it's stop faking news in in news okay uh stop fake news is that right or in news
2: stop faking news so it's okay. our appeal to the audience stop okay faking
0: news <laughs> okay okay well i'll make sure i post it alongside this uh, the rest of the show thank you so much again for being on the show tonight and michael mckay tell everyone how they can reach you you have a, a twitter account handle that's always uh, difficult for me to remember so even though it's only five uh, letters
1: yeah it's it just uh, letters uh it's uh, 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 MHMCK.
0: And Michael and has I'm a terrific gonna... feed. Everyone should follow both of your feeds. Michael's feed, in particular, has a, a really good uh, chronicle of what's going on in Ukraine. It has been for uh, persistent for the last few years, and it's been very helpful to me and to the other people in our audience to follow what's going on in Ukraine. And with that, uh, let's uh, say good night or early morning to you, Yevgen. Thank you so much for staying up so late. We really appreciate that, and hopefully, yep. we'll have you and back for on the show. Thank you very much. So, good night to you again and good night, uh, Michael. And yeah. uh, we'll see everyone back here tomorrow night on Narrative Live. Have a great night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.